Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. It's always odd for me to say it's good to be here because we're here, well, relatively infrequently and um, some new faces. Good to see. I'm Andy Phillips and uh, my day job, aside from being a grandparent, is I run a small school in Harrisburg called Logos Academy Harrisburg, and we serve primarily low-income families, but not exclusively, scholarshipping about 80% of the tuition costs. So there's a private school option, Christ Center private school option for kids that would never have uh, that opportunity. And you all as a church, uh, through your missions committee, support uh, that work. So on behalf of Verity, Yolani, uh, Tyrese, and the other 40-some students, thank you for that. Uh, it means a lot to them, um, and uh, for many of their life situations, uh, their school is uh, a place that's stable. Uh, one thing I'm super proud of is that all of our staff, all 15 of our staff, nine full-time, uh, five part-time, know every child and know every child well, and they love them as they are, uh, even in the squirrely moments, and there are those. So you make that possible uh, in part by your investment, your prayers. Uh, would deeply appreciate your continued prayer. Um, as some of you know, in private schools, uh, our, our compensation is not uh, extravagant, uh, to put it mildly. So finding staff is always a challenge. We're still trying to uh, fill a couple spots. We had a recent transition in our leadership that we're wrestling through. Uh, still have some open seats in the fall. So as you pray for us, pray for those. There are people in Harrisburg that would love an opportunity to send their child to a private school. But most families in poverty look at us and go, no way I can afford the private school. So getting that message out has always been a challenge. We continue to look for that. So appreciate your prayers for that, for our staff, for our students, and for our continued ability to love them kids. Uh, that's a mantra that we repeat often. At the end of our morning gathering with all our students, our principals stand up and say, this is the last thing I want you to remember today. We love you, and there's not a thing you can do about that. And so that message is heard by our students. And uh, so continue to pray for Logos. Thank you again for your support and uh, for um, your support, uh, certainly if Linda and myself and the rest of our family over the years as we've been connected with uh, Hanover Valley. So a great ministry, a great culture that's here. So thank you for being a part of that, all of you. So, And thanks to my good friend, Drew. So we've had a lot of, a lot of support support, tears, and encouragement over the years. So thanks for all that. Long, long introduction, but we are looking at a passage that I just love for a lot of reasons. You'll see um, uh, I, it's hard to, to kind of pick and uh, choose different pieces. So I've, I've got a section of what uh, I'll look at, but I want to read uh, this passage. This is a famous, pretty well-known encounter, even if you uh, haven't been a part of a church community or faith community. This is a big showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And uh, those, uh, the Israelites were wavering, um, Elijah says, between two. Either they're going to serve the Lord their God or they're going to serve Baal and their prophets. So uh, comes to this showdown uh, and Elijah says, okay, everybody, let's all come together. Let's have it out. 
And so we're going to set up two offerings, uh, bull offerings, uh, uh, build an altar here, altar there, lay the bull, get ready to go. Okay, prophets of Baal, it's your turn. You go first. You call on Baal and have him do his thing, and then I'll call on uh, the God, uh, the Lord uh, God, and we'll see what happens. Um, so let me start with uh, verse 20, um, and uh, I think I'll pick up on other contexts that I've left out. So uh, Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled all the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, as I mentioned, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us, let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces, put it on wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people who agreed said it was good. Uh, th then the prophets of Baal from morning to noon called on their God, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, shout louder. He said, surely he is a God. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's asleep. And needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder. Slashed their hands. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here. They came to him. They repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sayers of seed. And he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it. Do it a third time, he ordered, and did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar, even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. And don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. And then going down to chapter 19. Jezebel, the queen, had issued a death threat for Elijah. He flees, and we pick back up 
where he is hiding in a cave. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very jealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites and the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And, the wind, and after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. There you will anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Saphat from Abel Melalor to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elijah put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Saphat. Lord God, we pray that you might uh, give us ears to hear. We uh, thank you that uh, you have us here for a reason. We pray you would grow us in grace as a result and encourage us with your word, with your grace and mercy in Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I love this passage uh, and these two accounts in particular because the contrast is pretty stark, as you probably saw. Uh, There seems to be some gross inconsistencies with Elijah, but welcome to the family, right? I mean, we're all there at some level. Uh, But part of what I like about this is there's a lesson here for me, and I suspect for you, um, in the way God works. Um, Two ladies I want to tell you about, first of all, Elaine. Uh, she's, uh, I better not say her age in case she ever hears this, but she's older than me. We'll go with that. So really old. Uh, but she, um, she uh, had brain tumor, uh, surgery. Uh, the prognosis wasn't good. Uh, she wasn't expected to live long. They tried all kinds of different treatments. And uh, on a, a visit to the doctor, I think it was uh, maybe six or seven months ago, uh, it, the tumor was gone. She's completely healed. And of course, the family's thrilled, everybody's thrilled. And, uh, and those are great stories. We like to hear that. But the opposite sort of thing happens too. I'm thinking of a friend of ours, some of you know her, Mindy. Um, she uh, was connected with the church that I served in York for a number of years. Uh, she has a, a degenerative disease called leukodystrophy. It attacks the white substance in your brain, and essentially your body just deteriorates. I'm thinking, I'm thinking she's, well, I better not say her age either, but she's younger than me, so real young. And, uh, but she is currently, uh, Linda and I saw her this past week, she's 
She's in a wheelchair, can't walk. Uh, her bodily functions are significantly reduced. Her verbal ability is, uh, is diminished. Um, and so she's deteriorating. Um, and she, both these ladies are ladies of deep faith, of deep faith, deep commitment, great trust in God's presence, love, and mercy. And yet, God doesn't seem to be answering the prayers to heal Mindy, like he did Elaine. Uh, I often wonder, you know, we're doing this great school that's largely supported by, well, uh, primarily supported by individual funding, and God hasn't backed up a dump truck full of funds so that we can enhance our ability to educate and provide a Christ-centered education for students in Harrisburg. Why doesn't God answer prayers like that? And so I think this account of Elijah and what he had to learn through the process is exceptionally helpful for us. And so as we look at this section and we reflect on the two very different circumstances on the two different mountains, I think there's, great, uh, 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 there's, a, there's great lesson for us to learn as we uh, walk with God ourselves and pray and petition. So the first part, the, the showdown of Mount Carmel, I mean, that is, you look at that, that's the stuff movies are made of, that's got all the pieces, you know, the bad guys are there, the good guys are there, and the good guys triumph, and not in a little way. I mean, the showdown's there, and you've got to love that, um, and the setup's great, and you see uh, the account uh, no one answers, no voice, no response. And that's sort of emphasized over and over again as the prophets of Baal do their chants and, uh, and all that carries on with that. And, and what you see, you see a real confident Elijah. He doesn't just set up the showdown. I mean, he pokes. He's cocky. He said, where's, where's your God? He's not, maybe he needs to be woken up. Maybe he's traveling. Some argue that one of the better ways to translate this is that maybe he's on the toilet and can't answer. So he is just, it's just, it's really, it's really sort of an arrogant kind of way, totally confident that God is going to come through. And when he calls on his God, after he, he builds things up, it's not just this altar that he's having, uh, uh, just an altar built, but you remember, three big jars of water, dug a trench around it so it was filled with water. And then he prays. And what happens? God shows up. The fire comes down and consumes not just the offering, but the entire altar licks up the water, even says the soil. So, I mean, God wins. We celebrate. It's great. And, and the response he wanted, he gets it, doesn't he? What do the people do? They fall prostrate on their face and says, the Lord is God truly. <clears throat> it's a great triumph. God wins. And frankly, this is a way I want God to work, right? Call on God and he answers. And not just answers, but he delivers the dump truck. I mean, everything and then some. And it's not just this is the way I want it. It's hard for me, and I suspect hard for you in different moments and times and depending on the intensity, not to think this is the way that God should answer. I'm his child after all. 
Why doesn't he heal Mindy? Deep faith. Um, she's incredible to talk to, incredibly positive. Uh, worries. She doesn't, doesn't seem to worry about things. Um, and she's got all her faculties pretty sharp still, so it's not as though she's numb to things. But why doesn't God answer that way? Why doesn't God respond the way, with the fire, this instant response? And part of what makes it frustrating is sometimes he does. You've got the Elaines, right? He heals oftentimes. And sometimes it's pretty miraculous and right out of the blue. We want the fire of God to come down and transform, fill our bank accounts, heal our, heal our diseases, fix our marriage, provide the job, cure our anxiety. Sometimes he does, but often he doesn't. And a friend, Billy Martin, uh, grew up with across the street when, when we both went off to college. I came to faith, wrote him a letter, and Billy's response to me was, yeah, I tried that, but I found it doesn't work. And this is exactly what he means. God didn't seem to come through for him. God didn't seem to operate and do what he wanted him to do when he wanted him to do it. But part of the problem is, and I think this is part of Elijah's problem, and again, this is a bit conjecture, so work with me, but we mistake the fire of God for the presence of God. The text doesn't say God appeared, and I, I know that's, you know, work, again, work with me. But it is the fire of God that appears, the power of God. God himself doesn't appear as he does in the next chapter that we'll talk about in a minute. And frankly, oftentimes, and I know this is true of me, it's not really God that I want, but I want what he can do for me. Because he is the powerful God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He is the God who can heal all diseases. And I suspect that's part of the reason that the church has been so easily allured by politics, position, and power since Constantine. We mistake the power, we mistake power, position, the annihilation of our enemies as that which tells me that God is with me, for me, and the sum total of God showing up. When we win, when our enemies are defeated, when things work out the way I want to. But what's interesting here is that the fire of God doesn't seem to have the depth of transformation. In spite of the response of the Israelites, remember the Israelites fell on their face, prostrate, the Lord surely is God, but that's not what Elisha says in chapter 19. He said, no, they still haven't turned. <coughs> and how did it transform Elijah? From a confident, even cocky faith in the power of God. And what was he like? Jezebel the queen threatens his life and he flees in anguish, hides in a cave. So what happened? He saw the fire of God, but not the presence of God. And it's at Mount Horeb, Sinai, where the presence of God shows up. He's in a cave, a cleft in a rock, reminiscent of Moses, perhaps. And God asks him, Elijah, what are you, what are you doing here? <clears throat> and Elijah gives a puzzling answer. 
He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for all the Israelites. Well, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altar, killed your prophets. I'm left. I'm the only one. Woe is me. <coughs> and then the Lord says, step back. I'm about to pass you by. And you know, wind, the earthquake, what's interesting, what else? Fire. The Lord wasn't in any of those, was he? But in that still, small voice. And one translation I read says, the sound of sheer silence. That's where the presence of God was. And Elijah goes out, covers his face, for the very presence of God goes by. But then you read that God asked him the same question that he asked him before, before his appearance, and Elijah appears to give the same answer. <coughs> Need my water. Uh, he appears to give the same answer. But this time, this time when he answers, we see something the changes in Elijah. And I think there's important, uh, a couple important things to note. Um, first thing, uh, we want to note how the, presence, how the presence of God shows up. In the small, still voice, the insignificance, not the power. The, gen the gentle, uh, the unseemly, um, the things that we wouldn't expect. And what Elijah needed to learn and remember, and what we need to learn and remember, that when God himself shows up, it's not necessarily in power, might, and glory. It can be, and sometimes it does. But Elijah needed to know that he is in the gentle voice, the sound of sheer silence, the small and the insignificant. I need to know that. You need to know that. And frankly, from this side of the cross, we all ought to know that. We're so blinded. I'm blinded. We're all blinded by our addiction to power, to triumph, to comfort, to the pursuit of personal peace and happiness. That's our focus. So we miss and forget that God, I'd argue, prefers to show up in the small, the insignificant the weak, the marginalized. How did God come in the ultimate form? A baby and a manger. Not much, more, not, not much smaller than that. The first Palm Sunday, as he enters in this triumph, not on this white steed, as you know, but on a donkey. How does he conquer sin and death? On the cross. On the cross. His call to the disciples, the first should, should be last. Servants of all, even taking up our own cross. And yet we can't seem to let go in thinking that he's simply in the triumphant. He's in the accomplished. He's in the powerful. He's in the healthy. He's in the Elaines that are healed, not the Mindys that are still struggling and continuing to deteriorate. We think he's in the winning, the slaying of our enemies, and in the politicians that can ruthlessly accomplish our moral agenda, whatever that is. 
We miss the presence of God because we're convinced he's in the wind. He's in the earthquake. He's in the fire. And that the fire of God is the presence of God. But that's not how God reveals himself in Jesus. It's not how Jesus rescues us from sin and death. And it's not where we find God. So we need to recognize that. The second thing is we need to recognize the power in the presence of God, even in that seemingly insignificant presence. You know, it does appear, as I mentioned, that there's no change in Elijah because after all, Elijah answers the question that God poses to him in the exact same way. But there's two things that you'll notice. Same questions, same answers, but God says, return, go, He commissions him, and what does Elijah do? He goes. He goes. And the other thing, and I searched, and I I never found from that point moving forward, I didn't find the arrogance, the cockiness, the self-assuredness that you saw at Mount Carmel. You don't see that in the rest of the biblical narrative about Elijah. It's gone. The presence of God transforms Psalm 27 highlights this. One commentator put it like this on on Psalm 27. He said, God's beautiful presence comforts the abandoned, vindicates the falsely accused, and makes the brave cowardly. In fact, waiting on the realization of God's presence is always the formula for courage in the scriptures. And we forget that. We forget that. The good news of the gospel, Emmanuel, God with us, God with us intimately by his spirit since Jesus. God is closer to us, as one author put it, than we are to ourselves. It's a depth of intimacy, a depth of presence, which transcends anything Elijah could have hoped for. It's hard enough to trust God day to day, particularly when things aren't going well. But it's even harder if we can't remember or have no sense of God's presence with us. Will Gaffney, an uh, author, professor of Hebrew uh, Bible, put it like this. I heard it in a sermon um, uh, during the Christmas season. The author writes this, We do not walk alone among the shadows of earth because God is Emmanuel God, or God with us. In our brokenness, in our fullness, God is with us. God is with us when the bullets are flying, when the ground is shaking, when the planes are crashing, when the waters are rising, when the ship is sinking, when the winds are howling, when death is knocking When the shadow of death reaches out and touches, even at Christmas. God is with us. God is with us when we are falsely accused and unjustly imprisoned. God is with us in our fear and our horror. God is with us in our rage and our sorrow and grief. God is with us. God is with the suffering, the dying, comforting and accompanying through that valley of death that we cannot yet enter. This is the gospel, not that we are untouchable, that we're inviolable, for even the Son of of God was violated, but that we are never alone, never forsaken, never absent from the divine presence 
That is the gospel of light and life. If we can just believe that, experience that. We want the fire of God to make our life work the way we want it. To fix things so that they're the way we think they should be. But it's God with us that transforms, empowers, because we're never alone. Mindy believes this. And more than believes this, she lives it, experiences it. And I asked her, I said, Mindy, how do you pray? Because she's been battling this for seven, six or seven years and watching herself slowly deteriorate. She says, well, I ask God to heal me because he tells me to do that. Ask, so I do. But if he doesn't, I'm okay. I'm okay. And what empowers her day in and day out and empowers her with a spirit of gratitude, with a spirit of thankfulness, where she focuses not on what she can't do, but what, on what she can and what she has, is the living presence of God. She knows that God is with her loves her deeply and truly. She put it this way, I think when we were, she said this even when we were there this week, she said, I know without a doubt that if I was the only person in the world, Jesus would have died for me. And he's with me. He upholds me and finds great comfort in that. That's the power of the presence of God. That's God showing up. And we miss it because we're so addicted to power, to position, to things working out the way we want to. But what Jesus has showed us is the transformation comes in the small, in the insignificant, in the weak, in the broken, and then we celebrate in the resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are at work in our very hearts and minds. And while we are often overwhelmed, anxious, um, with uh, so many things that happen in our lives that uh, just appears that you're so distant and far and uninvolved. And we miss the small and the insignificant. We miss the sound of your presence, the sound of sheer silence. Our Father, might we uh, rest our hope in Emmanuel, God with us in Jesus. And we're so thankful that you have not left us alone but that you are with us truly, deeply, intimately. And you love us just as we are, not as we should be. You love us this very moment because of Jesus. And we're so thankful for that. We pray that that would be a reality, not just a concept, and that our lives might be transformed for your glory, for our peace and comfort and trust and the living God who is with us always, even to the end of the ages. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.